Romans chapter 4. As you know, this is without question, without a doubt, the most theological book in the New Testament. Uh, Paul decides to dig into some things that he doesn't necessarily deal with in many of his other letters. Uh, I personally cannot tell you exactly why that is, but I expect that it is the fact that Paul did not start the church in Rome. Paul never had the opportunity to visit the church in Rome either, but he certainly wanted to be able to pour everything he could into this one letter. It was very important for him that people were doctrinally sound and headed in the right direction, spiritually speaking. Now, that being said, Paul did have some information about the Jews that were in the church in Rome. And based on what he has written thus far, what you and I have studied thus far, uh, we've noticed that through some of the topics that he has tackled. And that being said, it's very clear that some of these Jews were struggling with some of their past beliefs under Judaism or it's also possible that they were even considering going back. But either way, Paul spent a lot of time calling out some of these false beliefs of Judaism, and then he corrected them with the truth that he found in their own scriptures, what we, you and I would simply call the Old Testament. But as you know, those were written to the Jews. And so he uses their own scriptures to call them out, to show them what the truth is. The last thing, as you know, Paul wants is for, for anybody, but certainly these people, to be confused on the differences between living under the law, which, as you know, is a works-based system that cannot save anyone, versus living under faith in Christ, which where we understand that uh, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven. You have to completely rely on Christ's death for your salvation. Well, since we've been here in chapter 4, Paul has shown uh, some great wisdom by using Abraham as his example. Without question, Abraham is the perfect person to use since the Jews love to discuss Abraham because, as you know, he, to them, he's, he is the greatest of all uh, the patriarchs. He is the father of the Jewish people. And so, of course, they love to talk about him, love to talk about his history. The issue, though, maybe I'm going to call it a problem, is that the Jews were taught, they were taught by the rabbis, that Abraham was justified by works. They said Abraham was saved because he obeyed the law, and as well as the fact that he believed, uh, uh, he believed, uh, he believed, he believed in God when he said that you should be circumcised. And so he believed that them as well, that he was heaven bound. And so what Paul does is he counters that once again, using their own scriptures. Okay. He teaches them and says, well, that's not necessarily correct. And I want to use your own scriptures to do that. And so the first thing he brought up was Genesis chapter 15, verse six, which very simply said, Abraham believed God he didn't say he had, uh, he had obeyed the law or anything of that nature. He did anything by works. It says Abraham believed God, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. But the key, though, is that it says Abraham believed God, and that's how he was proclaimed as righteous. 
Now, he then questioned the Jews and their view on circumcision by just simply asking a question. In chapter 4, verse 10, he basically says, was Abraham credited, uh, was his righteousness credited before he was circumcised? Or was it after? And of course, the answer is before, which I'm sure was a shock to these Jews. But once again, the scripture makes it clear, being declared righteous happened in Genesis chapter 15, where he did not even command circumcision until Genesis chapter 17, give or take, but around 13 years later. And so he's beginning to really kind of break down the errors in the Jews' belief system. Once again, they got a lot of this stuff from the rabbis, and they never challenged the rabbis, and the rabbis many times just taught Jewish tradition. But unfortunately, that's biblically incorrect. Okay? But if that wasn't enough to make them think, he then said in verse 13, he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So God did not give the promise to Abraham, right? I'm giving it to you and you only because he somehow had kept the law. I can kind of almost picture Paul saying at this point, would you check the scriptures? Just please go back and read the scriptures. Abraham lived four centuries before the law was even given. Okay? Once again, going back to Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. It was through his faith, he says, that he was justified. And then, of course, to help these Jews once again make sense of all this, because this was a lot to swallow. This was a lot to take in. He is, he is downplaying everything that they had believed. He is saying, you're wrong and proving it when so many things they believe. And so he then says in verses 14 and 15, he says, For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value. And then the promise is worthless. Because... The law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgressions. So once again, what he's doing here is he's challenging the traditional Jewish belief that they, the Jews, are the heirs to the promise because they obeyed the law. Now, the number one problem with that belief is that what? No one would ever be saved, right? Because there's no one on this planet who can keep the law. And therefore, the promise in and of itself would be meaningless because it would never be fulfilled. Can you imagine if God says, hey, guess what? I'm going to give you and your, your descendants, your ancestors, I'm going to give you this land, what we call Israel today. I'm going to give you these people. And through them is going to come the, the Messiah, the Redeemer. All you have to do is keep the law. But, but nobody can keep the law. There's nothing in it. What kind of promise is that? It's impossible. Can you imagine if God would have, have done that? So Paul says in verse 15, he says the end result in trying to keep the law is only going to bring wrath. It's only going to bring, he says, God's judgment. Whenever a person, and I'm sure we all know this, whenever a person tries to justify himself, 
by keeping the law, the more he finds out that he's just absolutely powerless to do so. The more you try, the more you sin. The more you sin, the more wrath that you bring upon yourself. Folks, listen, God's law, God's moral law, is holy. It is, it is righteous. It is perfect. And therefore, it's going to reflect how sinful man is. Man can't look at God's moral law and say, man, I'm just rock solid. I'm just a great human being. We can't do that, see? Matter of fact, Paul himself, the apostle Paul admitted in Romans chapter seven, I read it last week, said how he himself would stare at the law of God to find out that he himself is a sinner, right? I mentioned last week how you, it's almost like if, if, if you were to go out into the world today, do anything you want, whatever you want to do, just do it. And then if you came back home and, and if you looked at a, a piece of paper, but it was blank, you're going to go, eh, it was a good day, nothing, to, nothing there. Go out the very next day and do the same thing, live your life any which way you want to live it. But then you came back and you're staring at the law of God. Guess what you're going to find out? That you're sinful. You screwed up. You sinned. You failed God. You're depraved. Blah, blah, blah. Because now it's telling you, it's showing you who you really are. Folks, this is what the law was for. This is why the law was created. Okay? He's telling these Jews in our text here, it was never, ever intended to save anyone. It can't. It was never intended to save anyone. As Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, right? In other words, the law was put there to show us that we're sinners, that we would say, you know what? I need help. I need a savior. So it's there. The law was there to say you're, you're wretched, you're a sinner, you're depraved to push you to Jesus Christ. But the rest of the verse says, so that we might be justified by faith. So the law had a job to do, and it does it very well, right? But then he says, you're saved, you're justified by faith, by your faith in Jesus Christ. And so all that, folks, is, is, is Paul, his continuing message throughout chapter 4, and that is faith, faith, faith. He keeps pushing this. He uses the word faith 11 times in this one chapter. And so here, in a nutshell, Paul is, is, is simply saying that salvation, how one is saved, is by God's grace. In other words, if it wasn't by God's grace, we wouldn't even have an opportunity to be saved, okay? It's by grace, but it's through our faith. He's saying it's, it's not by works. It's never been by works, and therefore has nothing to do with obedience to the law. And so Paul has spent his whole chapter dealing with this, trying to get them to understand, to go back to the scriptures, get rid of the, the bad doctrine you have, and look at the way you can be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, starting in verse 18, which is where we're going to pick up this morning, Abraham is now back into the conversation. And once again, Paul speaks uh, about his faith in the power of God to fulfill his promise. And that faith in God's power, he says, wasn't just for Abraham. Abraham wasn't the only one in the world. He's going to go on to say, that applies to you and me as well. 
okay? And we're going to see that by reading this. So if you're there, read with me verses 18 through 25. I know you're thinking, man, that's a lot of verses, Darren. It is. 18 through 25. It says, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. So from there, drop back up to verse 18, if you will. Paul here is going to give just a little bit more detail on the faith of Abraham. And so it basically summarizes it in verse 18, saying this is what took place, okay? It says, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, he believed, and so, as if it already happened, and so it be, he became the father of many nations, just as it had was said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, to go through a little bit of this, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn back to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at a couple of passages uh, here in Genesis. Now, as many of you know, there was certainly a time in the life of, uh, of uh, Abram, his name was Abram at that time, there was a time in the life of Abram and Sarai where they were childless, okay? Right there in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, it says, Sarai was barren. It says she had no children. So we wanted to get that straight right off the top. Now, just turn your page one time over to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. This is the calling of Abraham. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, leave your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 4, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So God there, as we just read, told Abram that he would make him this one man, into a great nation. He then goes on to say that all of the people on the earth will be blessed through you. And then it says he left Haran 
and he went to or set out for Canaan. As you know, Canaan would ultimately become the land of Israel, right? But he set out for Canaan, and it says Abraham was 75 years old at this point. Turn once again, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 16 that in that chapter, Abraham is 86 years old. Okay? So here in chapter 15, he doesn't tell us, but obviously he's somewhere between 75 and 86 years of age. But I want you to read with me verses 1 through 6, keeping in mind what was just said in chapter 12, right, where God is calling Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation and so forth. Starting at verse 1, Genesis 15, he says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, but, but what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children. And so a servant in my household will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him. He says, the man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he says, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And what does he say in verse 6? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham here is, is straight up, and he says, look, it, I, I'm childless, right? At this point, my servant Eliezer is going to be my heir. I don't have any kids. And so in giving him a little more information here in chapter 15 than he does in chapter 12, God simply says, just, just look up at the heavens. And we've all done that, I'm sure, on a night where it's clear, or maybe the lights are out in your neighborhood, like where I live. We don't have a lot of lights. And he says, look at all of these stars, which you couldn't even sit there and count all those. He says, that many, so shall your offspring be. You're going to have a lot of descendants. And then, of course, that, that, that great point is in verse 6. Abraham, even though he didn't have anything, he, he looks up at the sky and says, are you kidding me? He says he believed God, right? And that belief, that faith that he had in God to take care of that promise was credited to him as righteousness, okay? Folks, that faith, okay, ultimately became the standard for all who believe, for everyone. Don't forget, I've used it before, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it says those who believe are children of Abraham. Okay? It was never about being a physical descendant of Abraham, which is what the Jews believed. The Jews said, hey, I'm a child of Abraham. Remember what Jesus said? So? I can make you out of a rock. You know, I can find those everywhere. But it was never about being a physical descendant. It was about having the faith of Abraham. And that's why Paul says here that those who believe are actually the children of Abraham. Turn back to Romans, if you're already not there, turn back to Romans chapter 4. And here in verse 18, 
Paul says what? Against all hope. Abraham had hope. Okay? Now, the words against all hope are obviously based on a human perspective, right? He's looking at his physical limitations. Uh, God sent him to Canaan when he was 75 years of age. And at this point, Sarah had borne him no children. Okay? God said he would have descendants as far as the eye can see. But Abraham's going, uh, I don't even have one. I have nothing. But as we saw in Genesis 15, against the obvious limitations that he had, what does Paul say here? Abraham had hope against all, against all the hope. The average person would go, that's ridiculous that you're going to have a child. Look at you. Look at your wife. But Abraham, he says, had hope. Abraham had a confident expectation, and it was grounded in the promise of God. That's very important, folks. It was grounded in the promise of God. And the point being, Abraham was able to look past the point that he was old and that his wife was barren. And as he said in verse 21, as we're going to see in a minute here, he says, I believe in the all-powerful God because he promised it. Okay? And as the rest of verse 18 says, that's exactly what happened, didn't it? That's what took place. He did become the father of many nations. God fulfilled his promise. And by the way, that should never be a surprise to anyone. Okay? Matter of fact, we know from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible that God can lie. It is impossible for God to lie, it says. And that's simply because it's against his nature. He cannot lie. But it's impossible. If God gave a promise... And he did give this promise to Abraham, and it was unconditional. It wasn't a condition. Remember where God split apart the animals and he walked through them alone? Usually if you made a promise, you'd be hand in hand with somebody else and you'd walk through those, those animals. It was just God who did walk through himself. God, as Abraham knew, was going to fulfill his promise. As I said, way back in our study in the book of Hebrews, when the Lord makes a promise, he puts his integrity on the line. Every promise of God is secured by his character. No different than we would do that today. If somebody, if somebody at work promises you something, you'll know by that man's character if you're going to trust him or not. But we can know that if God promises something, not a feeling, not what you feel, not what you think, but if God has promised us something in his word, it will be fulfilled. And that's where Abraham stood. Now, as we move into verse 19, the story continues as it pertains to Abraham and his faith. And it says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So what happened here, folks, is that Paul just moved forward 25 years. Okay? It's been 25 years, and taking that verse where, where, he, where he's talking about uh, where they were at, it's been 25 years since uh, God first called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, where he said that he would turn him into a great nation. 
And as you know, that starts with a child, <laughs> right? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 17, verses 17 through 19, God says that child, Abraham, will be born to you and Sarah. Why is that important? Because God never said that before. God simply said that a son would be born through Abraham's body. But now he says, starting off to get all those descendants, it's going to come from you and Sarah. And so now he actually brings Sarah into the picture, who is currently 89 years of age. Abraham is 99 years of age. Matter of fact, in, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 11, it simply says they were both well advanced in years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. But yet, God said, in a year from now, you will have a son. Or if you will, you too will have a son. And he told him his name will be Isaac. Paul says back now in Romans verse 19, with all that going on, he says Abraham's faith, what does he say? It was, it was solid. Abraham's faith was not weakened during this time. Remember, folks, think about it for a second. It's been 25 years since God had made Abraham this promise. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you look at Christians in our world today, we don't like to wait for anything, right? Oh, come on, God, it's been a month and a half. What's the deal? We live in a microwave society. We want everything fast. That's just how we are, right? But what happened next, of course, is what truly showed Abraham's faith. Turn back to Genesis once more time. Genesis chapter 22. God tested Abraham. You know, that's what he does sometimes. He allows tests that go on in our lives. You're going to find out where somebody's at. Genesis chapter 22, start with me in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, remember this is the son of the promise, right? And he said, go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So here we have the son, Isaac, who he waited 25 years for, who would be the first of all these descendants. And God says, kill him. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he, he saddled his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham stood up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Very important word there, the word we, right? Abraham felt that he was going to come back with both of them. We will come back to you. Abraham took the wood 
for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, uh, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Once again, he didn't look at him and tell him, you're it. He says, God's going to provide. Once again, you see his faith. When they reached the place, verse 9, that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He then reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then verse 13 says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. If you ever decide to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about Abraham's faith, you'll know that Abraham even believed that God would raise him from the dead. Even if he did kill him, he says, he believed that God would raise him because that was his faith. It was in God's promise. God said this was going to happen, and he believed that he would. He says, we will come back to you. God will provide the lamb. And of course, God ultimately did. But even if he didn't, he said, that's okay. God's, faith, God's faithful, and he'll provide those descendants, that land, and one day, a redeemer. If you ever question Abraham's faith, go back and, and read that again. So back in Romans 4, let's read verses 20 and 21. Yet he did not waver, speaking of Abraham, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave God the glory, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. I, I, I like here the fact that he, everything boils down to this one thing. They could not have children when they were young. And then after the, the promise, right, 25 years later, she's 89, he's 99, they still have no children at that point. And yet Paul says he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God. He didn't stop believing. He uses the word unbelief, which is very important. He didn't just stop believing, saying this is ridiculous, this is bogus, God has failed me. It didn't happen. He even says it gave God the glory, and here's the key, because God has the power to do what he promised. This wasn't something on a whim that's going, how's that going to happen? We're talking about God here. He says, I believe because God has the power to do that. Now, understand, that does not mean that Abraham never struggled in his faith. Okay? I'm sure there were times where, where Abraham could not figure out 
uh, how God was going to do this, how it would come about, or even when it would come about. But knowing that God would fulfill his promise was not the issue. Okay? Like all of us, folks, Abraham had a finite mind. Not an infinite mind of God. Abraham, like you and me, had a finite mind. I'm sure, like we all do sometimes, we look at the circumstances, don't we? We don't look to God. We don't look to his promise. We don't look to his word. We look at the circumstances, which is our bet. But we do that sometimes, and then we, we kind of go, oh, man, what's, shoot, what's, what's going to happen? And, when, and then we, been, we begin to waver a little bit. Okay? But not in unbelief. Our faith just goes, man, what's the deal? Because we don't get it. We don't understand. Our mind is finite. See? As I've said before, folks, when things are going well for any and all of us here today, when none of us have, seem to have a care in the world, all your relationships are good and, and your job is going great, there's, there's no stress due to, due to finances, everybody seems to trust in God. <laughs> Everything's great in life. It's super. But what about when those things turn around? A couple trials come your way. Some bills come due that you weren't expecting to have, right? Inflation under Joe Biden is 9% and you don't get a raise. Sorry, I had to say that. People's trust at that point seems to vacillate because they're looking at what's going on. But we don't throw God out the window. As a human being, we just say, I wonder how this is going to work. God's going to come through. We just don't know how because we're too busy looking at the circumstances around us. We see, folks, Abraham figured it out. Abraham was not forced to trust in man. That's good, folks. Every one of us here would have a problem if we had to trust in man, period. I doubt half the people on this planet, if that's probably a, on a good day. <laughs> but Abraham had confidence because it was God had the ability to achieve what he had promised. It had nothing to do with man had nothing to do with a family member or your boss or your neighbor or anybody else. All he had to do was look to God, who actually had the ability, who had the power to fulfill what he had promised. You see, folks, when our focus is on God, when our focus is on his character and his power to fulfill his will, we too should be immovable. Okay? Folks, this is why theology is so important. You know what theology is? It's very simple. It's the study of God, right? It's why it's so important. The more you get to know God through the study of his word, the more grounded, the more confident in him that you will become. When you begin to learn all there is to know about God, all there is that we can know, <laughs> we can't know everything. All we have is what he's given us in his word. But when we've come to know those things, we've come to know his attributes, we've come to know his sovereignty, Dave, as you mentioned this morning, you too will be anchored, see? 
And that's why Abraham's faith was mentioned here as well as in Hebrews chapter 11. It was that important because he was anchored in the fact that he believed God. It's that who he's looking to. If we, if we keep staring at man, if we keep staring at our circumstances, we're going to fail. We're going to get screwed up in our minds. But if we look to God who cannot lie, who has always been faithful, he has never been unfaithful, then we're immovable. But as far as, as Abraham is concerned, verse 22 says, this is why. So in other words, based on everything we just talked about from verses 18 through 21, he says this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's the answer. Here's why, he says. When your faith is described by Paul with words like, in hope he believed, without weakening, he did not waver, being fully persuaded. When you see words like that, you know your faith is real, you know your faith is true, and most importantly, it's in God Almighty. Okay? Remember, folks, your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. It's not just about Abraham had so much faith. It's who his faith was in, you see, right? That's the key. You can have faith in anything you want to, but your faith is only as good as who it's placed. See, that's the most important thing. Abraham's faith was not in man, but it was God. It was the one in whom verse 19 said, had the power to do what he promised. That means your faith is on solid ground. This entire chapter of Paul speaking to these Jews has been grounded in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham's faith. Abraham believed. He looked at all these, what would seeming to be limitations, but it says Abraham believed. But that's what this whole thing has been about. It stands opposed to the false teaching of Judaism that one can be justified, that one can be saved through obedience to the law. By God's grace alone, folks, the only way he allows salvation is through faith in him. The only way that God allows salvation is through faith in his son. And therefore, Paul's point here is it wasn't works. It wasn't how good I am, how gracious I am, or how holy I am. It's about the faith that he placed in God and that's why God declared him righteous. See? Now, moving here into verses 23 through 25, Paul wants these Jews to know that it's not just about Abraham. He's used this whole chapter, really, to talk about Abraham, to use him as an example, because he was a perfect example if you're dealing with the Jews, right? But he wants them to know, this is not just about Abraham. This is not, this whole thing isn't just about one man. But Paul wants them to know it's also about you. In other words, this isn't just some debate between me and you about what's right and what's wrong. It's about where you will spend eternity. It's also about how you will get there. You're going to get to eternity, everybody is. And there's only two destinations. It's heaven or it's hell. That's it. 
it'll happen. And how will you get to either one of those? See, what does he say? I'm just going to read them all, verses 23 through 25. He says, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone. These weren't just for Abraham, he says, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Paul says later in in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we, we might have hope. I'm not just talking about their hope, but also for us. He says that we might have hope. Folks, this is an example of exactly what's going on in our text when he goes back to Abraham. And he talk, now he says, now I want to bring it here to you guys here in the church at Rome, which now, of course, we can bring it here to the church in the 21st century here in Lynchburg, Virginia. The very same principle that was applied to Abraham is no different to you and me. And we are at a place, and we are to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about our faith, our faith in Jesus, in him paying for our sins through his death on the cross, he says, will be credited to us as righteousness. Once again, no different back then. It's not about us, is it? It's not about our works, how good I am, how nice of a person I am. Irrelevant. Every person is a sinner, and therefore every single person on the planet will never enter heaven without being forgiven. No one, right? No one. There's one thing, just one, that keeps us out of heaven. One thing, sin. We will pay for our own sin in hell, or we're going to allow Christ to pay for it on the cross. Those are your only two options. I mentioned back in chapter 3 how God takes our sin and he places it on Jesus, right? That's what happened on the cross. And in return, and here's this kicker, he gave us his righteousness. How's that for a switch? Christ took our sin and hung on a cross to pay for those sins and to die. And in turn, he gave us his righteousness, Folks, and that's what this whole chapter has talked about. Because all of that happens because of our faith in Him. In Him and nothing else. Your faith is only as good in whom it is placed. I don't care how much faith you have, it's who your faith is in. And I love how he mentions that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's important, folks. He's not asking you and me to to place our faith in someone who died and yet is still dead. We've all seen those things. You can go back and look at all the religions of the world and who started all these religions, right? You know, Muhammad, dead. Buddha, dead. Confucius, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. You know, Uh, Charles Taze Russell, he started the Jehovah's Witnesses, dead. You can go back to any of them you want to go to. They're all dead. 
but Jesus is alive. And we talked about on Easter, I gave numerous, numerous points to show that there was so much evidence that was ridiculous. So many people saw him risen from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He defeated death, proving, you know what? He truly was the person he said he was. He was the, the promised Messiah. He was the Son of God. He said all these things, and he proved it by rising from the dead, because nobody else could do that. And therefore, how fitting that he closes with verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Once again, I put emphasis on these words because it's very important. He took our sins and gave us life. Catch that? That's a good switch right there. This verse, folks, is a comprehensive statement of the gospel. On account of, of our transgressions, right? Our transgressions. He had none of his own. He didn't have any. Because of our sin, he died. Okay? And this, of course, for maybe for some of you, it, re- it reminds me of Isaiah 53, verse 5 which is 700 years before Christ, and yet it told exactly what would take place. It says, but, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. That is such a phenomenal verse because it says it all, doesn't it? Folks, that is what we call substitutionary atonement. Christ died as our substitute. He took our place. He served the sentence of death that you and I deserve. The wages of sin is what? Death. But that wasn't the end. It says that he was raised to life for our justification. His resurrection, folks, was was evidence that his work on the cross, that it was accepted by the Father and proof that because he lives, we too will live. Scripture tells us that. God raised him from the dead saying, I accept your death on behalf of them and therefore you are alive again. And that gives us hope that one day we too know that because we are sinners, because we put our faith in Jesus, that we too will live again one day. Folks, we praise God today knowing that he never, ever asked us to live by the law. He never asked us to be obedient and be this perfectly faithful person. Praise God for that because we would all fail, every one of us. Not a single person here hasn't sinned thousands of times. Because see, if that happened, if God did do that, then we would have attained a death sentence. If God says, I'll give you heaven, like I said earlier, if you can do this, ah, that's a death sentence. We can't do that. But he didn't do that. He gave us salvation by his grace through our faith because he took the death sentence upon himself. A great way for Paul to end that chapter. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that more than anything that you sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross. Lord, I can look at my life, and I, I know it more than anybody here, and I'm sure everybody can look at their life and know that they're sinful. They've lied, they've cheated, they've stole. They've been unfaithful in so many ways. We all have. But Lord, you have promised us that if we turn to you, we, we repent of those sins, and we turn to you and ask that, Lord, that you, we believe that Jesus died for us, that you will give us life. We thank you for that, Lord, because that, that in itself would not even be an opportunity without your grace. But Lord, you, you loved us that much. Lord, I pray that there's no one in this room who has ever passed that up. Sometimes, Lord, we just live in the here and now. We, we live in what's going on in our lives. But yet we don't realize that death can happen at any time, and that means eternity begins. There is no more chances. There is no, oh, well, hold on a second. I went to church. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. But Lord, as you know, so many people have done that and they've been religious, but they've never been born again. And Lord, we're so grateful that you've allowed that to be for myself and many others because we are so unworthy, but by your, your grace, you have saved us and you have changed us. We are grateful for that. We thank you, Lord, that we too one day will rise with you. We know it. it's nothing of what we've done for ourselves. It's truly because of you. We thank you, Lord, for that more than anything in our lives today. And we thank you for that reminder that it's solely through your grace, through faith, as we have gone through this chapter. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.